we're commanded to pray, so we do, we do pray. You don't have to ask yourself, it would, would, would God require it of me? Yes, He wants you to pray, but He wants it to be more than a burden. And we saw that last night as the Lord Jesus comes to His people and says a parable to them to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart. He's worried about that. So He wants to entice us, encourage us. So prayer, it is obligation, it is a responsibility of ours, but it's so much more. Jesus wants us to persevere, and He helps us in that. And he encourages us in a number of ways by reminding us that it's not like going into an unjust judge's presence. It's going to God's presence who loves us and is for us and cares for us. He reminded us that God hears the persistent prayers of his people, showing us that in that parable. And then finally reminding us of our status, that we are his children adopted by him. And therefore, he's inclined to hear our prayers. Because of that, we run. We even run when we know we've done sinful things, it is our tendency to, to pull back and to say, I will, I will hide that truth. Even as I wouldn't want my, my family or friends to know what I've done, there are times when I say, I don't want my God to know what I've done. And yet today, we're reminded not only of the, the, the Psalm 51, but the story behind Psalm 51. And be reminded of how God worked in David's heart, where he brought him to, and the blessing that came out of confessing sin. So today, not only Psalm 51, we'll also look a little at 2 Samuel 11, which is the context. We'll look a little bit at Psalm 32 as well, the related psalm to this one. And so with that in mind, uh, we'll start with Psalm 51, uh, looking at the entire passage. Uh, the Bible is inspired and there, infallible word of God. It's our only rule of faith and practice. Let's hear God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God bless just the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may notice that before we jump into verse 1, there is this uh, a note of explanation before that, a, a superscription, they call it at times, uh, 
Uh, not every psalm has one. Most of them are fairly vague and general in a sense. Uh, this perhaps is one of the most specific uh, of all the psalms that we have, pinpointing the historical origin. It goes something like this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so that's the story from 2 Samuel 11. You may uh, remember it well. David's sin, a king who was should have been off fighting battles, but he was at home at the time. And he was, therefore, the idea of not doing what he was supposed to be doing, which is usually that door for temptation to come in and for us to be inclined to, to do that which is wrong before our God. 2 Samuel 11, 2-5, we read these words. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took, and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Remember how the story goes. David is trying to cover his sin, not confess it, cover it. He sends off for Uriah to come back from war, come to be with his wife, and therefore, if they be together, then therefore, then the baby would be, be presumed to be his and not David's. Of course, Uriah is a godly man. He say, I'm, I'm not going to go and be with my wife when my men are all fighting battles. That's not the way I want to do things. And so there's, therefore, in David's mind, he's left with no other choice. He has to arrange such that Uriah will be killed. And therefore, David will take Bathsheba to be his wife. And maybe they won't do all the math and all of that. And therefore, to be presumed that it all worked fine. That David, as a wife, took her and therefore she conceived after that point and had a child. The Bible, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, one of the most kind of understated verses in Scripture. It says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 12, the familiar passage where God says, I will, I'll send my prophet, and he will be the one that will go and speak to David. And so if David won't confess that sin, either through neglect or out of fear of what happens when I confess it. If he won't be inclined of heart to do this thing, then I'll send my prophet and I'll speak to him and work in his heart such that he'll realize what he's done. And of course, it's the parable or the story meant to, for David to bring about self-condemnation. The, the story of a, a rich man with many lambs and a poor man with only one lamb. And the, the rich man takes the poor man's only lamb as his own. David, of course, responds, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David was so clear in his understanding of the story, yet not clear at all with regard to his own sin. It is a reminder of the way sin muddies our vision, our understanding, but it's so clear when it's somebody else's wrongdoing. How well we see those things, don't we? And Nathan says, You are that man. You are the one who, in David's words, deserves to die. You are the man who, in David's words, deserves to restore the lamb fourfold because he had no pity. And Nathan asked the question, why, why have you despised the Lord? Why have you done this thing? 
David cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan comes with those precious words at the end of 2 Samuel. The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So here's the context. David's committed this sin. Uh, we'll read by the end of 2 Samuel 11 that the child has been born. And so Nathan comes after that. So we know that nine months have passed between the, the adultery and the murder and Nathan coming at least nine months. It could be a little more than that. We simply know the child has been born. And so David, for all that time, has harbored that sin. He has not confessed that. He has lived with that in his heart. And therefore, Nathan has to come and speak to him. And only then does he confess. And so let's pause right there for a moment and step back and ask the, the theological question in terms of David and his relationship with God. Because he would, he would see him as a, as a believer at this point when he's done this sinful thing against God. And the theological question becomes simply this. Why does a believer have to keep on confessing their sins? Why does a believer have to keep on confessing their sins? If I have confessed that I was the sinner and I've placed my faith in Christ, trusting Him to, to remove my sins, such that I know by the gospel that God has forgiven all of them. He's removed my sins past, present, and future as far as the, the east is from the west. He's taken them and He's hurled them in the sea. As he tells us, he remembers those sins no more. Then why is it that I have to keep going and confessing those each time that I, that I do a sin? Or, or do I have to? There, there is this question before us, which I believe is massively important for your spiritual well-being. That you would not only understand we need to do this, but we, it, is, it is good and right for our souls. Because there are people who will tell you that if you're a Christian and you've truly understood the gospel, then actually to keep on confessing your sins is in some way to doubt God's word. Think of it. God has made these promises. He's told us. He's removed our sins. And therefore, to say, God, will you remove my sins, is in some ways, they would say, an expression of doubt. That God's not doing what he said he would do if we placed our faith in Christ. That he hasn't really removed them as far as the east is from the west. He hasn't really hurled them in the sea. He's held some of them back and was going to use them against us. And so we'll even take passages like 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And they'll take that and say, that's an invitation to the non-Christian. That's not for you. That's not for me who's placed our faith in Christ. That's for somebody else. That's an initial coming to the Lord. And so... They'll go so far as to say that the one who would regularly pray for forgiveness, the Christian who would regularly pray for forgiveness, here's a quote, live in daily insecurity, doubting whether all their sins are forgiven, unquote. And they would say to fully enjoy the liberty we have in Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, is to not think about our sins. To just know they're all taken care of. And therefore, I don't need to dwell upon them. I don't need to confess them. I need to regularly be in the practice of naming them before the Lord. But just remember, I'm free in Christ. It's all taken care of. Well, the problem, of course, is there's enough truth in that that our sins are forgiven to really confuse us, right? It is true. God has forgiven us all our sins. It's true. He's forgiven uh, past, present, and future. 
he's forgiven those sins that we've named. He's forgiven those sins that we have left unconfessed. Because we sin every day and there's things we don't name that we, we forget or fail to realize they're sin. So there's a sense in which you begin to say, I know they are forgiven. I know he's done that. But that's not the whole truth. It's, it's the truth, but it's not, it's not enough. There's, there's more that we need to understand. There's more that we need to see about the way in which God operates in the life of his children. And so to think of it from the divine perspective, from God's throne, judgment throne, all our sins have been forgiven. We've been justified. So God has taken every bit of our sins. And what's he done with them? Not just forgotten them, but laid them on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They've all been paid for. I know that God doesn't take those sins and throw them back on me because he's gotten rid of them on Christ. He's not holding them back by any sense of the word. He's placed them on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he can't hold me guilty for anything uh, that I would fail to confess. And yet, there's more to say in the matter. It's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And so I want you to realize that to not confess our sins, in some sense is absurd because God tells us to do that, but it's also very dangerous for us. Dangerous. And the example of David in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 helps us to see that danger. Let's start in Psalm 32 just to get a little more historical context because we have these, these two psalms relating one to another. Psalm 51 being the occasion where David's confessing his sin. Psalm 32 being in some ways the, the psalm where he is assured of the forgiveness of his sins. And so the question is, why do believers need to confess their sins? And I want to give you three answers this morning. And then we'll talk very specifically about how we confess. So why do we need to confess our sins? Three answers. Let's read Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Why do believers need to confess their sins? There's three answers. The first is simply this. That unconfessed sin smothers us spiritually. Unconfessed sin smothers us spiritually. David says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David says, in that season of life where I didn't confess my sins, when I ne- either he neglected to do it because he just didn't get around to it, didn't want to get around to it, or because he despaired over it. What if I name this thing? If I say it to God? I have to acknowledge the things I've done, the adultery, the murder. When either through neglect or despair, he didn't do that, he wasted away. His life was just smothered. He uses the, the analogy of his bones, the, the strongest part of our body, the part that, the, of our frame that holds us up, that very core of our structure. It itself began to be overwhelmed by the guilt that he was experiencing. 
He began to grow old, as it were, to decay with weakness. His grief was so intense that it begins to sap his health and to take away all his energy and vitality. He's just laying there, overwhelmed by it, smothered by his sin. And so we're reminded what a, what a killing thing unconfessed sin is. It's in our, our bones like a, like a cancer eating away at us. And so stop for a moment and think about our own spiritual life. There are times that we might not be inclined to confess a sin. Either because we're just being neglectful, overlooking it, or we're thinking it just doesn't really matter. I mean, what's the, what's the harm of leaving it in there, as it were? We, we have in mind this idea that it would be more harmful to say it. And yet what David reminds us of his own experience is the harm comes in not confessing it. The harm for my soul comes in leaving it on the inside, not explaining it to God or confessing it to God on the outside. And so here comes David as this example. It will, it will kill us spiritually. It will wear us out. And yet God in His grace is merciful. We, we see this in verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What do we call that? It's severe mercy. It's mercy, but it was severe. It was hard. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. But that becomes the mean by, by which he realizes, I can't leave this on the inside. I can't leave it unconfessed. It's smothering me. I need to confess it. And so negatively we would say, we need to confess our sins because it will harm our spiritual life. We'll smother us. Don't leave here today thinking, I can get by. There are no consequences for leaving this on the inside. David was wasting away when he didn't confess his sin. Secondly, more positively, to answer the question, why do we confess our sins as Christians? The answer is this, that with confession comes mercy and assurance. With confession comes mercy and assurance. Think of David's words in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Think of how sweet that would have been in David's ear. To know, after he's been wasting away all these months, to know from the Lord himself, you've forgiven my sin. You've taken them away. You've dealt with them once and all. His long Lingering, his broken heart realized that after I've done what I ought to have done in the very first place now and now alone, can I realize all that God has for me? It's mercy. It's grace. He has that. He intended for me to have that. And yet because of my own neglect or my own despair, I held back from that. And therefore to get to enjoy and be blessed by his mercy and the assurance that comes with that. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's ours. I mean, think of how reluctantly you might have been to go to someone and confess your sins, your sins because you think of the cost involved or what they will they'll think of you. And God says, if you'll come to me, despite your despair, Despite the shame that you might be experiencing with all that sin, if you'll come to me with a broken and contrite heart, here's what I'll give you. Mercy. Here's what I'll give you. The assurance that our relationship is okay. 
our relationship is restored in that way. That we're that we're okay. And so that's what David finally gets after a, a long season of holding that within. Back to Psalm 51, we see the same thing. Verses 1 through 8. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have a sin and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Now here's David shifting gears as it were. Here's what he's receiving. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And so here's David running with confession. Oh, it took him a very long time. He didn't want to do it. And yet finally he's moved to that point. And what does he receive? Mercy. He receives assurance. He sees that I will be clean. I will be whiter than snow. I will hear joy in my soul. You you have had unconfessed sin in your life for some season of time. There is not much joy rattling around in those ears. David says, now I know I'll hear it. I have the assurance that I can sing joy of praise over my God and what he has done. I have that. And therefore we see him running because he knows the character of his God. And therefore, good and right that we would confess our sins. Because it would kill us. It would smother us, for one thing. And then on positive, we would say, there's mercy there. There's assurance there. And yet one more reason to confess our sins. is because confession is a means of sanctification. Confession is a means of sanctification. I want you to understand, before we get to the end of Psalm 51, understand this. This picture of the way in which God is working in, uh, in terms of sanctifying us. Not having to justify us again. That's the once and all work of God. But sanctifying us. And the best example to give you is the, the story of where the Lord Jesus, a, a picture that should be familiar to you. Where the Lord Jesus comes and he's going to wash his disciples' feet. You remember he comes in on that occasion and he begins to, uh, to kneel down and wash their feet for they've traveled and their feet are dirty. And Peter says, Jesus, no, 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 don't wash my feet. Let, let me wash your feet. And Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. So Peter, for a moment, is confused of how this is working. He says, well, Jesus, then I, I want to be with you. I want to part with you. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my head and wash my hands. You remember the story. And Jesus said, you, you, you've got it wrong. That's, that's not what you need. Here's the lesson that Jesus gives. He who has a bath needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean, and you're clean. And so we have this analogy that Jesus is, is painting, which goes something like this between bathing and simply washing our feet. If you can understand the difference between the two, you can begin to understand Jesus' teaching and the way forgiveness works. There's bathing, bathing our head, our hands, our whole body. And then there's this washing off the feet that have been dirty by the walk on the way in. And Jesus tells Peter, listen, you don't need, you've had an appropriate bath. 
don't need to completely douse you again, to bathe you completely again. You're, you're clean, physically speaking. You just need your feet washed. And the image being, there's something that's happened to Peter such that once and for all, he is clean. And we would call that justification, a legal justification. He has been cleansed. His sins are no longer held against him in a, in a judicial sense. He's free from the penalty of his sins. And yet, he's been walking, as it were. He's been living life. And along the way, there's this dirt that's accumulated upon him. So he doesn't need to be justified again because that's not how it works. That's a once and for all work of God. He's bathing you, as it were, one time and you're completely clean. And yet there's a different sense in which as we live our lives as Christians, there's a, a filth that comes on us. And so not in a, a judicial sense of now completely cleaning you again, but in a, a fatherly sense of sanctifying us, washing us, removing that sin from us. That's what needs to happen. We need to be, to be bathed, as it were. And so here we find a sense of we need to be free, not from the penalty of sin. We've been removed from that because of the work of Christ. But to have the presence of sin taken from us. And something of the power of sin more and more diminished in our lives, whereby that sin is it's taken away. And therefore, that's what's happening in Peter's life. It's what's happening in David's life. Where God has moved in David's heart to say, Father, forgive me my sins. Why? Because David understands the sense of, I want to have those sins taken away, the filth of that. I want it off of me so that now my growing desire is to be holy. My growing desire is not to run to a woman in adultery, not to kill a man who's now going to overthrow me or have or cause great trouble within my kingship. I, I want to be holy. And so notice how it plays itself out in, in Psalm 51. He talked about wanting God to... Uh, to forgive him of sin, to remove the iniquity. And now, the more he works through that psalm, we get to verse 10. Psalm 51, verse 10, he says now, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Transition's taking place. Not just remove the sin, but now create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with, me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Do you see the fruit? Do you see the way the Lord works? He had to sin upon him. And at that point, he didn't desire holiness. He's not out there eagerly wanting to, to teach sinners uh, the ways of God. He's hiding. He wants to just simply be within himself where nobody would know what's happened. And yet what happens is we begin to be moved of heart by the Holy Spirit to confess our sins. And what happens after that is a longing for holiness. A longing to be sanctified. A longing to be more and more like His God. And even then to go past that and say, now that I'm like you, I want others to be like you. And so why do Christians need to confess their sins? Not because we need to be justified again, but because it's part of sanctification. This dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. This longing for, for our sins to be, uh, the filth of it, to be completely off of it. So that we might more and more long to be like our God and to serve Him so that others would know that. And so Christian, I encourage you, it is good and right to confess your sins. It's what God calls us to do. It should be our, our heartbeat as it, well, as it were. 
that our Heavenly Father so hated sin that He sent His Son to die for it. And now that Son living in us by His Spirit, we should hate those sins as well. And know that I should confess them. And knowing that there's mercy and assurance in confessing those things. And even sanctification. So that now that my desire would be, I want to confess it. And I'll do it. So, specifically, what might that look like? Psalm 51. Again, just looking at it one more time. What specifically are we learning about confession of sin? So those you are convinced today, it's good and right. And there will be occasion to confess your sin. You'll, you'll sin in the days ahead. What do we learn from this passage about specific confession of sin? Not everything, but a few things that I think would be of encouragement to you. The first is just noticing where David starts. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The first thing to remember in confessing your sins is that our only hope is the mercy of God. Our only hope is the mercy of God. And so that's where you start. Start there. Have mercy on me, O God. We tend to be justifiers, don't we? God, I did this thing, but, you know, it's been a really hard week. And therefore I was, and you go on and make this list. And so what are you saying? But your hope is that you could justify your sin. That God would say, well, I understand. It's going to be okay. It doesn't work like that. David said, I've got no excuses. And I have no hope. Say this. Have mercy on me, O God. So in your confession, start there. Our only hope is the mercy of God. Second thing we notice is that David knows that his sins against others are ultimately sins against God. That his sins against other people are ultimately sins against God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now make no mistake, he sinned against Uriah. You kill somebody, you sin against them. And yet David understood theologically, he understood what God has told him that, that this man was made in the image of God, this man belonged to God. And therefore I not only killed this man, but I sinned against him, therefore I sinned against God. That it's good and right for us to, to be very specific in the sense of, uh, of naming. I've sinned against a brother or a sister or against another person. But the ultimate realize that all sin at their core is an offense against Almighty God. And I need to make that connection. And not just work on this horizontal plane, but to say, even in sinning against my wife or my children or my parents or whoever, I've sinned against God as well. Spurgeon would speak about David in these ways. All his wrongdoing centered, culminated, and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. And we must make that connection as well. All our sins are ultimately sins against God, and we confess that even to Him. A third thing, I'll do four of them. A third thing, David knew he didn't simply do sinful things, but that he was a sinner. He knew that the act itself was wrong, but he knew there was something wrong even within him, such that he was a sinner. You see that in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Yes, he realized he had, uh, there was a specific transgression of the law of God, but he pulled back, as it were, and realized, I don't just do sinful things. I am a sinner. 
And so realize the tension that we have, that we are, we are to confess particular sins particularly. We are to confess sins specifically. And you'd always be willing to pull back and say, I didn't even do that thing because I was having a bad day. I didn't even do that thing because I was provoked in some way. I sinned because I'm a sinner. They're at my core. This is who I am, save the work of Christ who's made me a new creation. I'm a sinner. And I'll acknowledge all of that to God. That's the way David approached his God, the way we should approach him as well. But finally, to see this, in our praying, uh, specifically confessing our sin, our hope is in the mercy of God. All sins are ultimately sins against God. I'm not just doing something sinful. I am a sinner. But David prayed with an expectant faith. I want you to see that. David prayed with an expectant faith. We could see last night, as his children, as elect ones, he's inclined to hear our prayer. Notice the way David puts it in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David, the burden that David laid upon him was, uh, the burden that God laid upon David was severe. And yet David knew his God. David knew the character of his God. So that even though his bones were broken, figuratively speaking, he said, let them rejoice over that. Because I know my Heavenly Father. By faith, I'm looking at my circumstances. By faith, I'm looking at what's happening, saying, I know Him. He is a God who forgives His children. Not because we deserve it, because that's my God. And therefore, the Spirit has moved in David's heart to be praying, confessing with an expectant faith. One writer puts it this way. William Cooper says, There is an exceeding great love of the Lord towards His children, that He has not only provided a sure salvation for them, through the remission of their sins in Christ Jesus, but also seals up in their heart the testimony thereof by His Holy Spirit of adoption, that for their present consolation, lest they should be swallowed up by the heaviness of continual temptation. Though He speak not to all His children as He did to Daniel by an angel, saying, O man greatly loved of God, nor the way He spoke to the Blessed Virgin Mary, Hail Mary, freely loved, Yet he doth witness the same to the hearts of his children by the inward testimony of his spirit that when they hear it, they are alive. Your sins are going to say, hide it. Tell nobody about it. For what is your God going to do to you? Your spirit says, he's your heavenly father who will hear your prayer. He's your heavenly father and therefore you belong to him. Confession is good for you. It's good for your relationship with God. And therefore, pray it. Confess it with an expectant faith. For our God is a God of great mercy. And He'll hear you and forgive the iniquity of your sin. Now, David had a tremendous blessing in the sense that he had the Lord's prophet come directly to him, speak to him, so that his sin became very obvious on that occasion. And yet God has not left us without, without a word. He's given us the words of the prophets themselves and the words of the apostles. And so for us, the practice looks like this. Not waiting on a prophet to show up, but, but knowing that God has spoken to us by the prophets and by his apostles. And so therefore, we should be good and faithful to go, and to, go to that word and hear from the Lord. To know what is it that God has required from us in his word. To understand the ways in which we have 
done those things which we ought not to have done. To examine the scriptures and to hear from the Lord Lord himself and to, to see those things that we ought to have done that we didn't do. And yes, to pray specifically and to name particular sins before God. But more than that, to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, knowing that this was what David finally did. And God was gracious. And therefore learning all the more what true repentance looks like, seeking His forgiveness, seeking the transforming grace of God, whereby He doesn't simply forgive us, but not leave us where we were, but to say, I'll draw you out of that. I'm creating you a clean heart. I'll renew a right spirit so that you won't be so inclined to run back to that same sin. We should long for that. That our Heavenly Father would sanctify us. But even then, be reminded that we'll still need Jesus just as much tomorrow as today. And that's okay. It's the way He's made us. He will always be our righteousness. He will always be our sanctification. And yet we keep confessing and keep seeing the transforming grace of God for our good, but ultimately for the Lord's glory. And so let us confess our sins, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I pray that you would indeed, by this example in Psalm 51, by the power of your Spirit at work even now, that you would incline our hearts to be quick to confess our sins. We would not be a proud people, a boastful people, that we would likewise not be a shameful people, Yes, rightfully understanding what we've done is wrong, but always being, being eager to confess that and to seek your face. Be gracious, O Lord, to give us such a spirit. And would you always, as you promised, be merciful to us, your children. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen.